Well, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this um, 50th anniversary celebration of the uh, OECD, um, which, of course, uh, happens at a rather sad time, uh, particularly in Japan, as we've all seen. Um, so I'm sure that's all in our minds as we think about both the economic uh, prospects, but also, of course, the human consequences in Japan. And you may see while you're here during the day our own Japanese society who are uh, collecting for uh, victims of the earthquake and the tsunami, and I'm sure you'll all dig deep uh, into your pockets. I'm sure they'll take euros um, as well as uh, anything else. Um, but of course we're here this morning to celebrate the uh, OECD's 50th anniversary, and um, I think the first thing I will do is to invite you all uh, to stand and sing Happy Birthday to you uh, in whichever language uh, you choose. Uh, for the uh, LSE, the OECD is, of course, a great resource, first and foremost. Um, it produces a lot of the essential raw materials for much academic work in our economics department and elsewhere, uh, and it's certainly also, of course, a very good employer of economists, um, which uh, is something we have to think about. Um, sadly, I, actually, I discover, Angel, and I want to complain to you personally about this, uh, that literally this week uh, you have begun to employ um, a woman who has been my research assistant for the last two years, offering her an extravagant sum of money. Um, if only this conference had taken place a couple of weeks ago, I could have shamed you into withdrawing your offer. But uh, sadly, uh, it's too late, and she's now with you. Now, uh, my, uh, my own first-hand knowledge of the OECD relates more to the um, uh, aspects of the work of the organisation like money laundering where the financial action task force is very important and co corporate governance which has been a professional interest uh, for me. Uh, the anti-corruption work of the OECD is rather important but of course it does reach more widely than that and the current top priorities are in the field of development, of green growth, of skills acquisition etc. And of all of the things that governments need to do to attempt to recover from the last uh, recession. Of course, as you look around the world, some countries, uh, when you go and talk about the last recession, they don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but in much of Europe and still in North America, they very much do. And I think the key competitive advantage of the OECD, which is evidence-based comparative work on economic policy, is particularly important at the present time and it's particularly uh, relevant to many governments. And it's quite clear that under Angel Gurria, the organisation has accepted uh, the challenge of maintaining its relevance. Uh, anyone who has worked in the broad area of global governance and global financial governance knows that it is quite a congested field. Um, people from outside think, oh, well, there's the OECD with its role, and that's totally clear. But actually, there is a marketplace, if you like, in ideas and influence in global bodies, and it's always a struggle uh, to maintain relevance. You cannot simply sit there and assume people will beat a path to your door. Um, and I've no doubt that under Angel Correa, the OECD has maintained its relevance and, of course, has set off in some new directions to expand the membership, to respond to the changing centre of world economic gravity, uh, new countries have joined recently, others, um, some of the BRIC countries are now in a process of enhanced engagement with the OECD, and so it's undoubtedly taken a number of important initiatives to broaden its uh, scope and broaden its reach. What is the OECD for? Well, it's been described at various times as a think tank, a monitoring agency, a rich man's club, and once, in fact, I found in an OECD publication an unacademic university. Actually, I thought that sounded like quite an interesting idea. I'd quite like to run one of those. Um, but uh, sadly, at the moment, the job is taken. Um, but at the moment, I think its principal aim is to help governments meet the challenges of today and to do all that consistent with five principles which the OECD holds dear, that its work should be objective, open, bold, pioneering and ethical. And I quote from the annual report. That produces the useful acronym UBPI, 
Um, it's quite clear from that that the OECD does not employ an advertising agency, um, but it does employ someone with a sense of humour, as its annual report says that it sets international standards on the safety of chemicals and the quality of cucumbers. Uh, in fact, you'll discover this morning, I'm sure, that it employs two people with a sense of humour, the person who wrote that and Angel Gurria uh, himself. There have been only five Secretaries-General of the OECD uh, in 50 years, and Angel has undoubtedly been uh, one of the most energetic of them, uh, and we will see evidence of that uh, this morning. I'm also uh, delighted to welcome Vince Cable, uh, Secretary of State at the Department of uh, Biz, as we call it, um, who of course is, uh, in addition to being the uh, Minister responsible for business, is also the Minister responsible for universities, so we have to be especially polite uh, to uh, Vince uh, as he delivers a lot of our funding, although a decreasing amount, I have to point out. Um, uh, but we won't go into that uh, detail. Uh, so what we're going to do now is we're going to hear from Angel first, um, and uh, then from Vince, and then I hope we'll have time for some uh, questions and answers. Once again, you're both extremely welcome at the school. Let me hand straight over to the Secretary General. Thank you very much, uh, Secretary of State. Um, um, dear, admired, respected friend Howard Davis. Um, I have to say, normally they take people away from us, you know. Um, our chief economist has been snatched twice, and our chief statistician was on and off. And, uh, but so it's good to know that uh, we are uh, still attract uh, a few of the best and the brightest, so feel, you know, feel welcome. Give it a try. Mm. Um, I uh, have to say that uh, uh, there was a Polish ambassador who, when he took office in his maiden speech in the council, said, I'm delighted to be here in the OECD because during many, many years, as a liberal economist behind, behind the Iron Curtain in Poland, which is not a very comfortable situation to be in, I thought the OECD was a footnote. He said the reason was that there was very little information that we got from the West, but what little there was, was always saying, source, OECD. So I said, it's good to know that it's not a footnote, but it's a whole... Or institution. So it's a pleasure to be here to celebrate with you the 50th anniversary. As with our own lives, this milestone is an opportunity to reflect on past achievements, but of course that goes hand in hand with uh, looking at the future challenges facing the OECD in the years to come. We uh, come every now and then, invited by Howard uh, to refresh here our intentions and to look at what it is that the world is going to be doing, not today, but in the next five or ten years, and then try to fit there. So thank you for the invitation of having uh, uh, hosted this 50th anniversary. So we take a look back in time. We can identify a host of accomplishments from promoting European recovery, promoting European integration, developing comparable statistics, indicators, measuring economic and policy performance, all the way to forging international consensus through peer pressure, macroeconomic policy coordination, tax information, sharing improved aid effectiveness, etc. A globalizing economy demanded evidence-based policy analysis, policy tools, and a forum for policy sharing. Exchanges of best practices and peer learning. And central to the OECD is the understanding of member countries by member countries and for member countries. It is the place where this happens. This pioneering approach to cooperation put into everyday practice at the OECD is now being more widespread and the G20 is one way in which it is happening. Peer review is the most distinctive feature that typifies the functioning of the OECD. It's our production technology. Our well-known economic surveys, for example, bring policymakers from all countries to discuss and debate issues structured around the analysis of the Secretariat, and then all the countries 
have a big discussion about what it is that we propose. In the end, the collective is what transpires. The country that is subject to a review is brought under the gentle pressure of its peers. Uh, comment on the policies they intend to implement. And of course, we have no sanctioning capacity, uh, but we do have the peer pressure. And I can tell you, it more often than not works. This afternoon, in fact, I shall be launching the OECD's economic survey of the UK. Does anybody have a copy just so that they can, I can show it? I think I... I there it is. That's, uh, um, and uh, this is, you know, one of the examples. We do about 25 of those uh, uh, every year uh, with the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, we are going to be uh, saying what it is that we see and are focusing on in terms of the performance of the UK economy. But this knowledge covers uh, all areas of policy, uh, from education, where, for example, our PISA survey uh, is, has become a real leader, uh, and through which we change the understanding of how high-performing countries operate, uh, to the environment where we provide recommendations uh, about how to be green, or how to be greener. The OECD has been a pathfinder and an advisor to our member countries, but also to an increasing number of non-members. The mission statement of our 50th anniversary is better policies for better lives. That's what we, uh, we think are about. Uh, it's our raison d'etre, better policies for better lives. So what are the future challenges? Well, we must recognize that the center of economic gravity is, of course, moving from west to east. We, we actually published a book recently called Shifting Wealth, and I would recommend it. It's good reading. We, we uh, uh, published it in the memory of Angus Madison, um, uh, who unfortunately died before we can uh, actually uh, present it to him. Uh, but um, we, uh, we, uh, well, we document there that uh, when the OECD was founded 50 years ago, uh, it represented 80% of the world's economy. Today it's about 50-something, maybe below 60. And if things continue the way they are, uh, in 25 years' time we're going to be below 40. So obviously, uh, if we want to continue to be relevant and important and have an impact, etc., we have to be uh, working with these other countries more and more. So policymaking and the global governance architectures need to be taken into account uh, need, to, need to take these, these uh, changes in, into account. Um, so we're working hard. We, we just had uh, four more countries join us. Uh, smaller uh, countries, Slovenia, Estonia, Chile, and uh, Israel, each for a different reason, because they, they do uh, kind of different things that complement our work. But also Russia is now in the process of becoming a member. It'll take a little longer. They have to deal with the WTO first, uh, but... Uh, and we are working with uh, Brazil, uh, China, India, South Africa, and Indonesia uh, in what we call enhanced engagement with a view to possible membership. Precisely because we recognize that without working with these large emerging economies, you can't really be very effective when you're dealing with anything global. Either trade or poverty or climate change, whatever you want, you can't really deal with global issues without the participation, active participation, and policy inputs of these large emerging economies. But, uh, but it's working. Uh, I was in India last week, and uh, the, uh, the foreign minister told me that uh, in the last year, 800 officials from India had actually asked for authorization and been granted authorization to come to the OECD to different types of meetings, or had been elsewhere in the world to OECD-convocated or OECD-related meetings. 800, and they're not a member. Uh, so it's quite fascinating, but of course we work intensively with these countries in a number of issues, and as you can see, uh, selectively, but they are participating uh, very actively uh, with us. Now, thanks to these evolutions, we are now not only more uh, open, but we are, I think, more plural in the sense that we've become more sensitive to the challenges of, of uh, emerging and uh, developing economies. And uh, 
you know, <laughs> as Howard says, we're sometimes known as a club of the rich. Uh, the fact that it's led by a Mexican is probably proof enough that it's changing. But at the same time, it is also important, as I said, that it's not just a question of working with these other countries or for these other countries, that, but that we, if we do not make these other countries also work for uh, the rest of the world, if you will, for the stability of the rest of the world, then it means we're not doing our homework very well. Why? Because like every country in the G8, or practically every country you know, in, in, the, in the developed world, China, India, South Africa, Indonesia, all have to have shoulders that are broad enough to carry their own load, plus a little bit more. All of them have a big stake in the stability of the system and the prosperity of the system. They're no longer the we and they, you know, and they're no longer developed and developing. We're no their, their interests are today, to a very great extent, aligned with export, capital exporting countries, with very large exporting countries, period, and with people who develop their own intellectual property rights and want to protect them and want to protect uh, against uh, seizures, uh, seizures and, uh, and against expropriation and things. All the things that always worried only the rich countries in the developing countries now are uh, worrying the emerging economies as well because they have the same kind of challenges. Therefore, it's easier to work together uh, because uh, as I said, there's a convergence. Now, uh, we... Uh, we're going to have on this 50th anniversary uh, a big, big event next May. It's, uh, we're going to have Hillary Clinton preside over the uh, proceedings uh, because, remember, we were born out of the Marshall Plan. Then we became the Organization for European Economic Cooperation. And then 50 years ago, we were turned into the OECD, with that a more global uh, uh, challenge. And, uh, of course... Uh, uh, it was the Americans and the Germans. Now, Angela Merkel is coming to represent uh, the other side of that transatlantic uh, bridge that was built then. Um, and we're going to have other uh, leaders uh, like uh, President Sarkozy himself, and uh, hopefully the president of uh, Korea is going to be presenting the Green Growth Strategy. And uh, we're going to have uh, 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 many uh, other uh, prime ministers and presidents, etc. Uh, come and join our uh, commemoration of the 50th anniversary, but also to give us guidance uh, in terms of what we are expected to do uh, uh, going forward uh, for all of them. Uh, now, there are a number of things in which we have been working, and uh, I mentioned a few, but there's also this other issue about uh, how to make the world work better in terms of its governance uh, and which probably the more salient uh, example is the G20 effort of working things through. Um, again, there's a question, there's always this balance between legitimacy and, uh, and governance and uh, the OECD is sometimes frequently reminded that we don't have as permanent members countries like China or India or South Africa, etc. And this is why we're doing this rapprochement with them. But uh, the G20 is also told that, yes, there are 200 countries in the world, and there are only 20 there, or 22 or 23, and therefore they lack the legitimacy. But of course, the, the mix between uh, being able to manage decisions and, and take effective decisions and the question of legitimacy, uh, legitimacy is always a, a difficult one. Um, we've actually been looking at the possibility of, of even of creating what I would call an observatory for policy coherence simply to make the OECD work better with the World Bank and the World Bank with the IMF and the IMF with the ILO and the ILO with the WTO, etc. Because all the international organizations seem to be working in silos separately, each one of their own responsibility. And I think that was one of the reasons of the crisis, by the way. Because we had one issue for one institution almost on a monopolic basis. Of course, if that institution didn't deliver, uh, what happened is there was a systemic failure for everybody. And if we're all sort of breathing down each other's neck, a bit, a bit of cross-fertilization, a bit of cross-pollination among the international organizations without creating another bureaucracy or without obstructing each other's work, but basically complementing and, and being able to uh, give each other uh, some opinions, I think we can help who? We can help our member countries, the same people that set us up and that pay for us uh, to operate. 
So I think we can uh, do a better job uh, there. Um, the, the other question of the, the OECD is, of course, uh, relevance, relevance, relevance. How do we maintain relevance? How do we keep relevant? How do we get the pertinence? Some of my colleagues tell me, don't say the R word because it looks like we are irrelevant. No, it's not that we are irrelevant. We're, we're very, very relevant indeed. The question is, how do we continue to be relevant, but also how do we increase our relevance in certain, in, in the pertinence, how do we get it right in terms of the choice of the things that are going to be important in five years' time and ten years' time, and how do we start working today that we're ready by the time the issues become a problem or a challenge, rather than start working on that on the day, because it is the flavor of the day, because it is politically correct to do that at that time, and writing op-eds, you know, because you want to be in the newspapers. How do you have by that time a full armory of evidence that will inform decision makers about the issues that are being discussed and that are critical to the future of the world at that time? Five years time, ten years time. Well, we have to come to places like this, you know, to, to be able to uh, see where it's at. Uh, but that is a very, very great uh, 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 very good challenge. We are, for example, uh, putting out, we just put out three years' work about an innovation strategy. We just gave uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, Cable the last uh, spin-off, which is the um, uh, skills to feed the innovation strategy. But uh, you know, we've done all the way from measuring innovation all the way to, to how to promote it, how to finance it, how to invest in it, how to, uh, you know, just on innovation. Now we're working on the green growth strategy as a one level down the specificity of the of the innovation strategy. So, and, and, and how, why? Well, because it's interesting, it's fascinating, but what we're trying to do is find new sources of growth. Why? Because the governments have run out of money. They're trying to reduce the deficits. They're trying to reduce the accumulated debt, or at least the speed of debt accumulation. And when you run out of money, what for the pub, from the public side, what you do is, well, enlightened public policies to encourage the private sector, uh, and at the same time, go structural. Look again at the old things like education, like competition, like opening labor markets, opening product markets, like innovation, like green growth, like uh, you know, health issues, uh, etc in order to sustain the recovery, strengthen the recovery, and maintain it over the medium and the, and the long term. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, friends, uh, uh, let me quote, uh, it says, death is the inevitable fate of human beings, but it need not be the fate of organizations provided they are sufficiently adept at adapting themselves to change circumstances. Um, these were the words of a gentleman called Flint Cahan, Deputy Secretary General of the OECD, in his speech to mark the establishment of the OECD 50 years ago. And they remain as relevant today as they were then. And I trust we will continue to live up to them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think I'm going to hand straight over to uh, Vince Cable. Look forward to hearing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, can I start by echoing your director's congratulation of the OECD on its 50th anniversary and say that Britain is proud to be a founder member of the OECD and the predecessor, the OECC. Uh, and it's worth, I think, reflecting, you know, 50 years, how things have changed. Um, just a few stray points. I mean, the United States, President Kennedy, uh, a surplus economy, um, dominated world trade. Uh, China, at that time, peasant economy, mass starvation in the wake of the Great Leap Forward. Uh, India hadn't experienced the Green Revolution, let alone the IT Revolution. Um, you know, the dominant concern, I remember this as a first-year undergraduate, 
uh, was about Khrushchev's speech, you know, we shall bury you with the superior economic and technological performance of the Soviet Union. Um, European community, it, wasn't, it was called something else then, had just been formed and said no to the British. You know, we were dealing with a very, very different world. Um, but one thing that did happen at that time was almost entirely unnoticed by everybody, I want to come back to the significance of it, was that OPEC had just been formed a year earlier. Um, nobody noticed, it was a minor ripple. And about that time, the oil price was two and a half, uh, three dollars a barrel, which is about twenty dollars in current prices, uh, but significant. But, but what, what I think is worth noting is that throughout this quite extraordinary change, it's sort of unrecognisable world in many ways, uh, the OECD as an organisation you know, maintained a set of consistent values, which were commitment to a market economy, to democracy, and liberal international trade. I mean, essentially a, a liberal tradition that my government's proud to count itself a member of. And part of that liberal tradition is about multilateralism. It was drawing the lessons of the interwar period when the world descended into a deflationary spiral to protectionism and the necessity to build institutions, multilateral institutions, which countered it. And hence Bretton Woods, the IMF, the World Bank, as well as GATT and the, uh, subsequently the OECD. And I think it's worth reiterating that there's nothing more important for the current recovery, as indeed then, than to maintain free trade and the opportunity that it provides. And the OECD, through its analysis and advocacy, is actually an essential part of that. And it's not just analysis and advocacy. There's some of the key international rules governing trade and investment, um, export credits being one, bribery being another, where it's, it's OECD rules that apply, so it is, it is actually a key institutional part of the, the rulemaking system. And the, the last 50 years have demonstrated the importance of maintaining that commitment to openness. I mean, you know, we've had our crises, and we have them now, but we've had extraordinary explosion of economic growth, reduction in poverty in many countries, much of this transmitted through international trade. And throughout that time, the OECD, through its analysis, its advocacy and, and, and the rest, have been a, a vital influence in promoting good policy. And maybe that's um, a point at which just, I think, to acknowledge its strong support for the UK government's difficult but necessary policy at the present time, um, and Hank Alcaria, I think, in his address a few moments ago, stressed the importance of evidence-based decision-making, and certainly I and my colleagues in the government uh, would argue very strongly that the very difficult decisions that we're making are based on evidence, they're not based on ideology. Um, indeed, I, from my side of the coalition, argued a, a couple of years ago that uh, we, we had a real dilemma around fiscal policy. It was going to dominate the new government, whoever it then was, and we were having to balance risks. Uh, one of them was the risk of uh, threatening economic recovery if it coincided with weak private sector, uh, but equally that acting too slowly ran the risk of a funding crisis and the loss of financial confidence. Worse for the economy, worse for government finances, and ultimately for, 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 uh, forcing a damaging austerity drive that some of us vividly remember from the mid-1970s. And our decision as a government, when we came in last May, was based on evidence, and it was very clear. You know, there was a sudden debt crisis, it was affecting countries that had a fiscal position actually not as bad as the UK's, um, we were, we had evidence in front of us of a recovering private sector, uh, we had a preoccupation with debt, including very large levels of private household debt, which meant the, the importance of a loose monetary policy with low interest rates to avoid debt deflation. I mean, those were the facts around which we had to organise our priorities, and so we dealt first of all with the issue of unaffordable government spending, 
a comprehensive spending plan, the most comprehensive, I think, of any major country, uh, plotting a clear path, a path back to fiscal balance. And we're now, as a result, grouped with the fiscally strong countries, and our recovery has a firm foundation. And uh, we value the endorsement that we've had uh, from the IMF, but particularly in this context from the OECD, and Angle Korea himself said, the measures are tough, necessary, and courageous, and acting decisively now is the best way to secure better public finances and bolster future growth. And I, uh, I encouraged him this morning to tell me a little bit about what's in today's report, and I think he said the key message is stick with it, which I was very encouraged by. Uh, but I, I, I think rather than just go on about British policy and explaining what we've done, I, I thought I would venture a little bit into new territory and try to reinvent um, the period I enjoyed before I became an MP uh, when I was chief economist of a big oil company and try to think through uh, some of the problems that we might experience um, as a result of a sharp rise in oil prices, should it be sustained, and think through what that might mean and what it means in terms of multilateralism and multilateral policy. Um, and in the context in which we operate, for the last two years, of course, all thinking has been dominated by the financial crisis and what caused it and what its consequences uh, have been, and, and we will be preoccupied by that for some time. But what we now have is superimposed on top of it potentially uh, another very difficult problem, which is the, the, the possibility, indeed more than the possibility, of a substantial oil price shock. The most recent peak was 120 for Brent crude, as against 60 average in 2009, 80 2010. Now, this could quite possibly be no more than a spike caused by disruption in Libya. It's important, but not absolutely central to supply. It could be a short-lived. It could be of no great economic consequence. Indeed, we had similar anxieties about spikes around the beginnings of both of the two Gulf Wars, and it may prove to be no more than that. But equally, it could prove to be something more fundamental of the kind that we began to experience before the financial shock in 2008, when we had rising global demand led by the emerging markets, substantially outpacing productive capacity and leading to a potentially major shock. Now, what would this mean? How would it work? I mean, those in the room who have done economics will know that the, the simplest, easiest way to think about this is as a, uh, an oil shock, as an indirect tax uh, effectively imposed by the producers on the consumers. In the UK, just to put this in context, we consume about 1.6 million barrels a day, so a $10 increase translates into a tax of just under 4 billion, which is about a quarter percent of GDP. Now, in the case of the UK, we produce almost as much as we consume, so it's an internal transfer. But uh, at a global level, effectively what's happening is the real impact of oil-consuming countries um, having a tax imposed on them by the oil exporters. And it depends, obviously, what happens to the revenue, just as if an indirect tax is imposed domestically, depends what the government does with it. Uh, and it's possible, in certain situations, we worried about this in the 70s and early 80s, when we had the first experience of a big shock, that oil exporters don't utilise or fully utilise the revenue. Um, so you have an adverse terms of trade effect on the oil importing countries, a loss of real income, they have no opportunity to export back or to receive investment flows from the surplus countries. And there's what in an extreme form Keynes wrote about in relation to German reparations, the real transfer problem. Uh, in practice, what we experienced then, probably would experience now, is fairly speedy and efficient recycling. Exporting back to the oil exporting countries or them reinvesting in the oil importing countries. And that these things do work. They work with a time lag. But if the shock is very big and if it's very prolonged, this may emerge as a significant problem with very real costs. Uh, there's another impact, probably 
of more immediate concern, which is the impact on price, price levels. Um, in the case of oil importing countries, you've got, and generally we get imported inflation. There's one plausible estimate that an increase of oil to $150 a barrel would increase inflation in the UK and Europe by 1%, in the United States by 3%, because of course different levels of petrol tax. Uh, and in the light of this inflation, central banks that target inflation in a mechanical way uh, might well raise rates, further deflating demand to bring prices down. Uh, and indeed, central banks that target nominal growth may have an advantage here, but uh, as in the UK, a flexible remit is preventing a deflationary response so far. As the Governor of the Bank of England made clear when he said that changes in indirect taxes or commodity prices often affect the domestic price level, but do not in themselves change the underlying rate of inflation. But actually we don't know how independent central banks will continue to respond to this, and we certainly don't know how individual central banks and governments will collectively respond were this to emerge as a major problem over the next year or so. Uh, we also know from experience that when you put together the, the real income loss, the terms of trade impact and the deflationary response to increased prices, you then get second round effects. And were China and India, which are big net importers, to reduce their rate of overall growth and import demand, this will have a significant impact on the rest of the world. And we know from the experience of the 70s and early 80s that it's these second round effects that are substantially more important than the original impact. Uh, of course, we are less oil dependent, certainly in the Western world, than we were then. But on the other hand, we have more interconnectedness, and so the net effects may be very substantial. Now, the, the economic impacts will inevitably be reduced in importance. The higher the price elasticities of supply and demand for oil. Uh, there is a certain amount of fashionable scepticism about supply elasticities, much as there was in the 1970s, you may remember the Club of Rome. And this scepticism is currently often expressed in terms of a peak oil uh, problem, which I spent quite a lot of time debating with colleagues on the other side of the argument. I, I would point to the fact that you are getting very substantial increases in uh, deposits, new technology and uh, exploration. Uh, the finds in Brazil and West Africa are uh, important. There are big non-conventional oil supplies in Canada and elsewhere. But it pointed out in return to me that you know, there is a problem because even if it isn't a technical problem, uh, you have problems of environmental risk and you have resource nationalism and you may well indeed have uh, inelastic supply for those reasons. Uh, on the demand side, I think there are probably grounds for being optimistic, at least in the medium term. Uh, the old socks of 74, 79.80 changed behaviour quite radically over a period of years. Um, in the United States, uh, they consumed 25% less, they were 25% more energy efficient a decade after the first oil shock. And over three decades, the U.S. has reduced its oil intensity by half, and the United European Union and, and Japan even more. And basically, technology has reinforced price signals, even when the price signals went away. And it will now continue to operate on the demand side. I opened the big display outside my department yesterday of all the electric cars and hybrid vehicles that are now coming through the British uh, supply chain. In, in this field and a higher price, a higher prices, a price shock will of course reinforce the demand influences. Uh, and if the short-term worries about oil price reinforce long-term worries about climate change, this will mobilise or help us to mobilise public support behind one of the big strategic decisions this government has made. It's not been as well publicised as the public spending decisions, but the decision to give the highest priority to creating a low-carbon economy. And uh, there may no longer be as much scope as there was a decade ago to switch within the power sector from oil, because that's largely happened. But there is a lot of things to be done in total energy conversion. Uh, the energy infrastructure in general needs to become much less dependent on conventional fossil fuels. We found resources in our highly constrained budget for carbon capture and storage, 
and potentially far more for a green investment bank that will accelerate the adoption of low carbon technologies. We're putting in place what we call a Green New Deal, financing the uptake of energy conservation uh, in the housing stock, and we support a coordinated approach to carbon tax and carbon trading. And the OECD, through its declaration of green growth, has given impetus to this policy internationally. Uh, I, I just, you know, before getting too far down this track, perhaps just to reissue the caveat that we're quite some way off a major oil shock. It may never happen, of course, let alone a subsequent recession. Um, just to mention one obvious point is that, uh, is that whereas a, an oil shock gives uh, impetus to uh, security of su supply concerns in importing countries, it gives cause for worries about security of demand in the exporters and they will almost certainly, some of them anyway, try to moderate prices as a result of that. Uh, and despite the pressures from higher commodity prices or the current surveys of economic activity, manufacturing in particular suggests fairly wrong, strong growth and there is indication of a willingness uh, to maintain, if necessary, unconventional monetary policies to maintain nominal demand. So we've, you know, there is no reason for assuming that we will get a major negative shock, but the, clearly the risk is there. Uh, and if a shock were to happen and were to persist, it's going to require multilateral action to deal with it. Uh, otherwise we get into nationalistic responses. And a very strong rationale for policy coordination to avoid all the negative spillover effects, which indeed reinforces the relevance of bodies like the OECD. Indeed, one of the positive legacies of the oil shocks of the mid-70s and early 80s was, particularly in the wake of the Yom Kippur War, was the IEA, the Sophisticated Energy Analysis and Strategic Stock Management. So let me just conclude that just as the um, banking crisis had an underlying cause in global imbalances in savings and investment, what is now emerging is potentially another fundamental source of imbalance, all demand in major oil importing, major emerging markets growing faster than supply capacity. And just as the financial crisis revealed how essential are the institutions of international finance and how vital it is that we have a multilateral coordinating response, the same applies in energy. Uh, our confidence that future energy challenges can be met also demands that we first look to forums like the OECD and the original solutions. Thank you.
And the others, we are being demandeurs, I have to tell you. I mean, we have no qualms in telling them, you know, you remember that post of the United States with this uncle something, I want you, you know, for the war. Well, in this particular case, with no qualms, he said, you know, we want, we want you to work close with us, we want, we need you in order to be more complete, more, more thorough, more important, more, more uh, relevant, etc. And we actually work very much with them. Just a little example. Recently went to Indonesia. We delivered full economic service, just like what we're doing today for the UK. But also the report on their investment policies. With our recommendations and, you know, what works and what doesn't work, etc. And they said, would you please work on our regulatory environment, our regulatory framework, and of all things, of our agriculture policy framework. So, and now we are looking hard at their anti-corruption efforts. Why? Because it happens that in the context of G20, France and Indonesia are co-chairs of the anti-corruption group. And obviously, uh, in the case of, uh, of Indonesia, they want to make a contribution to the G20, but also want to work with their own challenges in this particular matter. And we have the Anti-Bribery Convention, and we have a number of things that we do also for public procurement policies inside, and the, the control of uh, auctions for... Uh, uh. So the answer is absolutely yes. In five years time, ten years time, I would like to see either full membership, uh, ideally from all these countries, or a type of engagement where they no longer consider us to be different or alien or something else, but rather fully engaged, fully committed to them, to work for them, with them, in the, for the benefit of, of the greater good. The question of the awareness of their own systemic responsibility is quite important here. But also, I have to say, they have internal issues which, if mastered and if well addressed, can make enormous contributions to the benefit of the world at large. For example, if China would strengthen their social security institutions, if China would uh, strengthen their uh, uh, healthcare institutions, if China would well uh, would strengthen their pension arrangements, <coughs> if China would uh, lighten some of their uh, haiku or huiku uh, uh, rules about uh, migration, and uh, establishment in the cities, etc. All those things would be of enormous consequence for resolving the problems of the so-called uh, current account imbalances in the world. So uh, the answer is absolutely yes. This would be a very important uh, challenge. I am a founder of the G20 when I was finance minister of Mexico. We founded the G20, and I have to say we tried and tried and tried to take it to the leaders level, because you remember Paul Martin, mm -hmm. he was then finance minister of Canada, he was the one who led the charge, and we followed and we put it together, and at some point in time, when Paul became prime minister, he said, well, that's natural. We now go leaders, you know? So, and nobody took us seriously, nobody was interested, in fact, they all very, worked very strongly to get us out of the way. Nobody was interested in doing a G20. It took the greatest economic crisis in our lifetime in order to realize that you needed something more than the G8 and the coziness of the G8, and uh, that you needed more legitimacy, more representation, and more clout. And there you got the G20, which is, I, I think, the great contribution. It is an enormous change in governance, and I think the best is yet to come. But it took, as I said, the biggest crisis. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten there. We tried hard for about 10 years before that. I'm glad the French are in charge of the anti-corruption group and not the agricultural policy group. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Could I perhaps conclude by asking you what the British attitude to this is? I mean, are we, the British government, in favour of further uh, OECD expansion and of seeing the OECD move in the direction that you're talking about? Yes, we are. But just to return your original question, I mean, the, the transformation of governance and the new 20 is significant. Uh, but when you actually ask the question, well, what has the G20 actually done? Uh, it's, you know, they have the coordinated discourse in the process, but uh, not a great deal has happened since. 
be subsumed in this larger grouping. That, that probably is the underlying fundamentals. Mm. May, may I just comment on that? Because I, I think probably uh, uh, Secretary Say is, is mentioning the most visible part, but without the G20, because it was the source of the crisis, remember, was the financial destabilization of the financial system. I think. The, the, the G20 working together allowed this administration. We still have homework there, but it happened because of the G20. Then, of course, it went into the question of getting us out of the recession. Then, because they did that with lots of bills, right? Now we're now uh, trying to get this balance right between the between not killing the recovery, maintaining the recovery, and at the same time bringing down the deficit and, and the accumulated debt. Why creating jobs? Wow, you know, everything's very, very difficult. But there, we now have a much greater capacity, at least, to discuss these issues in a common uh, forum. And uh, the, the, the work that is being done, that is called the framework for uh, stable, stronger, uh, uh, sustainable. Uh, Work uh, balanced, uh, stronger, and sustainable. This is the most promising conversion work, so that we can avoid a sort of the beggar thy neighbor. That we are not there yet. We have these discussions about currencies and the particular Chinese currency and others. But I have to say, I think this is pregnant with promise because otherwise we probably have to invent it. You know? But there's a key test in the next few months with whether the G10 structure the world international trade. Ah, uh, of danger of going off the rails. Yes, and uh, unless that's done, you're in trouble. That's a low-hanging fruit, actually. If you can't do that, it's going to be difficult to aspire to do the more difficult other things. So. Look, thank you very much for kicking us off today. What's going to happen now is that there's going to be a fairly quick uh, turnaround here onto the economic panel, which will start in uh, just under uh, just under ten minutes' time. Uh, but thank you very much, Secretary General, for starting us off.